How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context, and we are cruising through this Be On Guard series as Michael teaches through Second Peter. Today's episode, we're looking at chapter 2, the latter half of verse 10 through 22. Now, I thought I would also mention, I hope you have been enjoying our Ask Dr. E episodes. We are trying to release those about once a month. So if you have a biblical or theological question for Michael, call us or email us. I'll make sure that that info are in the show notes so you can easily access that phone number or email. But we would love to hear from you and you can be on the lookout for our next Ask Dr. E episode coming out next week. But for now, let's join Michael in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 22. How many of you uh, watch like Discovery or Earth uh, programs, whether it's Discovery Network, YouTube, whatever, where uh, these predators are chasing a herd of animals? How many of you like watching those things? All the boys raise their, oh, some women like those things. Um, I remember as a child, of course, this is 100 years ago, we had three channels in UHF, which no one watched. Um, but when they have these nature shows where these lions would be you know, set up after this, maybe it was you know, a, gr- a group of animals, and um, going in for the kill. And of course, now with HD and multiple camera angles, you can see uh, all the nature you want to see. It's pretty fascinating. What do these predators, these prey, what do they go after when they approach a herd of animals? The weak, and what else? The young. Why? They're the easiest prey. Because you're not going to go after a bull, a strong animal. You're not going to mess with the big, strong ones because it's going to be a fight. So, you know, and maybe it's like veal. Maybe it tastes better when it's younger. I don't know. Um, sorry, it's a bad joke. When you think of false teaching, it's interesting that Peter in this chapter, Second Peter chapter 2 we're looking at today, uh, that is one of the illustrations he uses that People who are weak, who are susceptible, who are easily led astray are not unlike prey to false teachers. You're not going to go after someone who's smart and strong and knows their theology. You're going to go after people that are not educated, don't, aren't grounded in what they believe and why they believe it. As a reminder, 2 Peter chapter 2, the whole chapter is about exposing and the condemnation of false teachers. Uh, The first section, Peter explained that false teachers spread destructive heresies. That's one of the ways you identify them. Uh, They even deny Christ. And we talked in that text about our response is to be both discerning uh, at their teaching, to pay attention and be humble. It's not our job to go around pointing out everything that's wrong with everybody. I mean, yes, we're going to declare when things are not correct, but at the same time, we're not sort of this Gestapo going out correcting Christians. It's the balance of being discerning and yet being aware. 
and being humble. Secondly, he explained the fate of these false teachers, that their end was not going to be pleasant. And finally today, we are going to look at a detailed and vivid description of these false teachers and what their destruction looks like. It's a much longer section than we have been doing in uh, 2 Peter. So some of you will be happy we're going faster, some will be sad, get over it. Uh, so first let's look at their destruction. We're going to look at verses 10 through 16, picking up at the middle of verse 10. Let me just read. You can follow on the screen or in your Bible. Chapter 2 of 2 Peter, beginning at verse 10, daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of, indis, of in, creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But... He received a rebuke for his own transgression. A mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. So in verses 10 to 16, we have their description. Number one, they're rebellious. The two words Peter uses, daring and self-willed, describe this bold arrogance they have, the rebellious nature that these false teachers have. They indulge in the flesh and the corrupt desires, and they despise authority. They don't tremble. They have hubris. They're proud at their sinfulness. Um, a humble person, uh, a person who accepts teaching, wants to learn. But these men and women have no need for that. When Peter writes they revile angelic majesties, it exposes their disregard. Here is a supernatural creature group, angels, that God created before eternity passed, uh, my thesis is that he used them to execute the creation of the world, the creation of the universe as we know it. He empowered these supernatural beings. And they even know their limits. And Peter is saying they even revile these supernatural spiritual creatures that God has created. It exposes their disregard for who they are. Uh, the, interesting, the word Revile is the same word, uh, blasphemios, where we get English blaspheme. They slander, they speak ill of in denigrating ways toward these creatures. They despise authority. Some of us grew up in traditions where the word lordship is used a lot. Lordship salvation, is he lord of all your life? Is he lord over every area of your life? Well, one of the words used in our New Testament here, authority, is where that we appeal to that word, lordship. Christ wields a ruling power of lordship over your life and mine, and they disregard this. Again, it's self-evident. If a Christian wants to follow Christ, he or she wants to learn, grow, change, and submit. 
If they don't, then they don't. It's that simple. It's not like a hard test. It's either true or false. Do we want to love Christ and follow him? Or do we want to do our own thing? He continues that they have their self-control, they lose it. False teachers are doing what the angels won't do. So first of all, we have this disposition that they are rebellious. Secondly, they're animalistic. Secondly, they're animalistic. Verse 12, unreasoning animals. Uh, you know in Greek the letter A is a negative. A millennial. There's no millennial. The word here is a logos. Logos is a generic word in the New Testament. Usually it means the word of God. Not always. It can mean reason. It can be word. It can be term. But the word Peter uses here is a logos. Because they don't have any knowledge. They don't know the word. They're unreasoning animals. They don't possess any more capacity than an animal. Now I know, if you've got a dog or a cat, you're going to take issue with me right now. Because your little dog or cat is exceptional. I mean, I have a friend who claims that their cat plays fetch. To me, that's a mutation, not normal. Uh, animals are animalistic. How often do we read in the news where some uh, person has an exotic animal that turns on them? Because they're animals. They're unreasoning. They're built on instinct. Peter says so, creatures of instinct, meaning they belong to nature. Now, this is an important thread that we're going to see later in this section. So hang on to this nature part. It belongs to their nature. They have a value and a purpose to be captured and killed. Now, if you're vegan, if you're, you know, PETA, uh, that's great. I got no bones to pick with you, literally or metaphorically. Uh, I'm a carnivore. I'm a meat eater. I'm going to pick my bones. I'll respect you. You respect me. Scripture seems pretty clear. And Peter uses the illustration. They were meant for capture and for killing. Again, Peter uses the word reviling. Same word in verse 10 is blaspheming. They they are revilers. The word play, in their destruction, they'll be destroyed. And their attempt to destroy, they themselves, will, it will come back on them. So again, in their disposition, they're rebellious, number one. They're animalistic, number two. Third, they're deceptive, verse 13. The word play that, Paul, that Peter started in verse 2 continues. His description is they're going to be caught in their own deceptions. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. And wages is a very descriptive term. Wages are what we're due, what we deserve. If you're a contract employee, you do a project for a person, you do a job for that person, and you get paid a wage. That's what you're due. If you're a salaried man or woman, you work, you expect your paycheck to come. There's deductions, things taken out, so forth and so on. But that, that's, Now, it may not be what you'd like, but it's what you deserve. That's what you get for your job. It's a very easy term to understand. The wages of their wrongdoing is going to come back on their head. God will recompense them. They counted a pleasure. The word pleasure here is where we get the English word hedonism. They counted a pleasure to revile in the to revel in the daytime. And again, this goes back to the animalistic arrogance, the deception. We, we used to use the phrase, they did it in broad daylight. You ever see these stupid criminal acts, stupid criminal tricks? You know, at the end of the year, they have these reels you can watch on YouTube. Stupid. You see people doing the dumbest things. One of my favorite ones was a couple years ago where a guy breaks into a cash and carry store and the woman behind the counter sneaks out and locks him in. So there's bars all the way around him and a locked door. 
It's great. And he's on his hands and knees praying like this to her, asking her to let him out while she waits for the police to arrive. Talk about a dumb criminal trick. So you do it in broad daylight. You weren't smart enough to think through this. And that's the aggregate. He's saying in their deception, they'll be deceived. They're unforgiving. And the language Peter uses, they're stains and blemishes. I mean, today, talk about politically incorrect. Peter would be in trouble with our culture today. You're just a stain on the world. You're just a blemish on somebody's white T-shirt. You're, you're not even, you know, your purpose as a false teacher is horrible as they carouse with you. This gets pretty illicit and immoral, and I won't go into great detail about what the language means here because we are a bit of a family, but they're reviling in their deceptions and their immorality, and they're doing it in broad daylight. That's what Peter's saying. When we began Peter, second chapter of Peter, chapter 2, we discussed that immorality is often interlaced with false teaching. And he continues to unpack that and explain it very uh, graphically here. Uh, false teachers are going to get away with nothing. Just to encourage you as we go down this list. Scripture is clear. Again, we want to be discerning, want to be humble, careful how we talk about these things. But to trust God at his word at the end of the day is always terra firma. It's always safe. No matter what the culture tells you and me, it's always safe to trust his word, even when people think you and I are nuts for doing so. Just as God's judgments are sure, you can be certain his justice will be as well. And that's not sort of this capricious, boy, I can't wait for them to get their due and their comeuppance. That's not our attitude at all. We pray for people to repent, false teachers in particular. Well, fourthly, they're insatiable Verse 14, uh, Peter's accusations were almost, like, you heard the expression staccato, some of you are using a staccato or a machine gun. These words just keep coming at us, which is one reason I wanted to look at the whole text because it would just be labor to go through this vocabulary. But it's just, it's just this machine gun type of invective that he's throwing at these false teachers, having eyes full of adultery that never see from sin. Eyes, of course, ophthalmos in Greek, ophthalmos, you go to the ophthalmologist, they're full of, they never stop thinking, eyes full of adultery. Technology has done remarkable good in our culture and it's done remarkable evil. I don't know that there's, if there's a set of scales, is it done more good than bad? I don't know. I would say it's pretty equal at least. It's done extraordinary things for us technologically. Uh, we all love technology in certain ways. We love to use it in certain ways. Uh, the way musicians play today, the way things are done in a studio, the idea of a group getting together in a room and actually playing together is so rare because of the way technology works. And with a simple program called Pro Tools, they can integrate all kinds. It would blow your mind to see how a musical engineer produces a song. It will blow your mind to see how imaging is done from a so-called x-ray or MR or CT scan and how that imaging then is put into a format that a radiologist or a physician can read. It will blow your mind the good that technology has done and it will blow your mind that what technology has done for evil. Antiquity always had idolatry and immorality. I mean, from the moment, you know, when, when the woman and the man choose to take the fruit and eat it, that was immoral and adulterous and idolatrous all at the same bite. It looked good, good for the, you know, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life, as, as John will speak of it. 
So it's still there. But the accessibility of it with technology is extraordinary. Our young men and women are so over-sexualized at such an early age. Uh, it's, it, it's just rampant. And you read this passage and you think, this is written, let's just say for round numbers, almost 2,000 years ago. And Peter's saying, eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. False teachers promote this kind of thing is where he's going with this. They think only of immoral thoughts. As a sidebar on this, because it's such a problem in, in the church and our culture, um, I often think about it. There's, there's actually a group of Christians that are promoting the idea that pornography and immorality really aren't that bad if they're done within boundaries. Now, figure out those boundaries, but there's a whole movement sweeping across the country right now and these churches that it's not bad as long as you're not hurting anyone and you're responsible and you're safe. Pornography doesn't hurt anyone. There's this nomenclature that's invading the church now because we're frogging the kettle. The culture has changed dramatically and we're rather than standing up saying, you know, hey, I, I respect you as a human being. I care about you. I disagree with you. I don't think that's correct. That's really hard for us to do. We're, we're frankly, we're timid. We're afraid. Sometimes we're just cowards. Sometimes we're just unsure how to have the discussion. In Jesus' life, there is an interesting section in Matthew 5 through 8, technically, the whole passage. But um, there's a series of points when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. It's a great study. You've heard it said, but I... You've heard the law to say that, it's, that adultery is wrong. And this to me is the coup de grace of the thought life. Matthew of 528. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with adultery, with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it said immorality is wrong. I'm telling you, if you look at something immorally, you've already committed that sin in your heart. Now, present company excluded or accepted. We're all toast. We're toast. Is there a man or woman in this room that can honestly say, I've never looked at another person with immorality in my heart? And if you are, there's the door. Because we're all sinners. Jesus is turning up the heat. Is he turning up the heat just to make us miserable? No, because that's not how Christ works. What he's telling you and me, what he's telling the audience is, you're going by the law. I didn't go over 70 miles an hour. But if you thought about going 80, you're just as guilty. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. What's the point? We're all toast. That's the point. And as he continues chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, what he's saying is the only righteousness that's found in Christ is in Christ. You cannot make your flesh better. If you take nothing more home today, you cannot make your flesh better. You cannot be more disciplined, more self-willed, more deterministic, better at whatever, stop doing this, start doing that. Those are all helpful. They don't make the flesh better. Apart from God's word and God's spirit transforming the believer, we are unrighteous. We have no hope. We have no help. And that, in a way, it should be liberating. If you're caught in pornography, you're caught in an affair, you're caught in immorality, um, I want you to feel guilt and shame, but I don't want you to beat yourself to death because that's not what Christ does. Christ made a way. He made a provision. He solved the problem. Peter is pointing out 
False teachers are insatiable in this immoral section of life. God designed sexual intimacy to operate perfectly, beautifully, and blessed in the context of a heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage. What a terrible way that I have to define it. A heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong relationship until one dies. That's where sex is blessed. That's where the relationship is a wonderful thing. That's the only place is without guilt and shame. And that's how he designed it. And the word pervert in English, in Latin, and in Greek, and in Greek etymology means to twist. Perversion means to twist something. We've twisted the truth. We can do this, it's not that bad. We can do that, well, same-sex attraction, well, my identity, my gender, all these kind of things. Hot topics I know today, God designed sexual intimacy in the boundaries of a heterosexual, monogamous marriage. Does that mean we don't lust? No. Jesus just exposed we all lust. Does that mean same-sex attraction is worse than being a womanizer or having an affair? No. We have this sort of thing in our brain where, you know, okay, same-sex attraction is okay, gender identity is okay. We kind of go down the list as as the culture changes. When is pedophilia going to be okay? When is bestiality going to be okay? Francis Schaeffer said it 40 years ago. Once it was not discussed, when it becomes thinkable and discussed, it will soon become a reality. Do you think you and I will live long, long enough where pedophilia will be legalized? Some of the European countries are changing the age. They're bumping it down. They're bumping it down. We live in a crazy time. Nothing's new. What Peter is saying is these are insatiable desires. Think of, this, think of the argument today of sexuality. It's insatiable. That's why we keep experimenting and trying other things because it's insatiable. The only place it's satisfying or satiable is in the context of a heterosexual, monogamous relationship. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I'm not going to shy away from telling you the truth. I'm not mad at you if you believe in same-sex attraction. I'm not mad at you if you believe in gender changes. I'm not mad at you if you believe in gender politics. I'm not mad at you if you think those things are real and true and the psychologists can line up and, and argue with me. I am telling you that's not what God's Word teaches. One man, one woman for life. Peter is saying this is the stuff of false teaching. That should give you some courage. You don't have to go out and be mad at everybody, but it should give you some courage to say, yeah, that's what the Scripture says. Well, all these Christian same-sex people are saying other things. Well, listen to our interviews with Rosario Butterfield. Listen to our interviews with Christopher Yuan. Listen to people that have been on, on the other side of this argument. They're saying, wait, 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 wait. That's not right. Jackie Her- P- Perry Hill, listen to her story. I love Jesus more than my girlfriend. Wow. You think she's got some hate mail after that book? False teaching is prevalent. He continues that they go after people that are unstable or weak. Back to the animals, they're easy prey. Their heart is trained in greed. Interesting turn of phrase. Um, when When I say the word gymnasium, what do you think of? Place you work out, play basketball, swim, maybe, whatever. Any of you European, uh, you've been to Europe? What's a gymnasium in Europe? It's a school. 
So if you go to Russia or in Germany, you'll see a gymnasium. That means a school, not a workout facility. That's actually a better translation of the word. A gymnasium was the education center. In Greek, the language, heart-trained gymnazo. A heart that was educated is what Peter's saying in greed. Interesting turn. False teachers pray in the weak and they use their own greed to accumulate more followers and they instill that insatiable greed in other people. The definition of contentment is simply one word, enough. It's enough. When you get to a place in your life when you say enough, you become content. Uh, us mar- young married couples, middle married, bigger, better, new, more of their houses, right? We, we're going to go, Cindy and I just built, we call it our last home before the rest home. We just, we just built our home, moved in about a year ago. And you know what? I, I'm married to a realtor, and she will tell you all day long, if you build a custom home or buy one, there's always a ho- whole bunch of things wrong with it. She's got this little formula she uses on how you navigate all that. She helps me a lot. I get to live in her house. I appreciate that. Uh, but you bigger, better, newer, more. When you buy another car, you don't buy a junkier one than the one you have. It may not be brand new, but it's better than the one you're getting rid of. When you decide to buy a new pair of shoes, you buy a pair that's better than the ones you're retiring or throwing away or whatever, right? Bigger, better, and more. It's part of the way we think. Contentment is when you say it's enough, and we all struggle with it. When you say, I don't need any more. My family all has iPhones. I pray for them. I'm stuck with a Samsung. They hate me because I'm an Android communist. And I won't convert to Chinese technology and have an iPhone. So it's a matter of of spiritual pride. (laughs) I like my phone for lots of reasons. Um, And you know, they've come out with about six more models since I bought this one. But this one's paid for. And it works. And you know what? It, the new ones don't do anything that I need or really even want. In fact, I probably use about 2% of the ability of this piece of technology. I wish I had my old Razor. Old, any old enough to remember the Razor 3s? I would give anything for that old black Razor. That was the best phone I ever had. You could, I mean, texting was, forget texting. It took you 25 minutes to do a text. So just call somebody and say, hey, how are you doing? Okay, you know, but it was, just, it was a great phone. It lasted forever. It was cool looking, fit in your pocket. It was all aluminum, one plastic, didn't break. Give me an old Razor. Bigger, better, new, more. I'm being silly, but making the point, contentment is enough. False teaching is the deception that the next bigger, better, no more will satisfy you. And as a young couple or small children, we're all caught in that trap in the West. As they get older, we need more of this, bigger this, better schools, da 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 You're never going to give your child a car without an airbag. I remember the discussion when our kids were little. Well, that year, Ma didn't have an airbag. I went, well, you know, I never had an airbag, and I survived. And some people are getting killed by airbags. Help me out on this one, you know? Bigger, better, no more. What's contentment? False teaching is a heart trained in greed. It's insatiable. And then he lands this burst, accursed children. Accursed children. People that are locked into that. Well, fifth and finally on this section, they've gone astray. Verses 15 and 16. And Peter uses an Old Testament illustration to talk about what it means to go astray. 
He goes back to the animalistic story, and here he's going to introduce the prophet Balaam. Now, this is a great story, and if you haven't read it, you need to go home and read Numbers 22 and follow your cross-references around your Bible and read about the story of Balaam, uh, the prophet of Peor. Balaam is a prophet in Numbers 22. It's a tragic story with a lot of comedy tossed in. Balaam is not a prophet of Yahweh. Most people miss this. We don't know who he's attached to, but he's not a God-fearing Israeli, a Jewish prophet. He's called a prophet. There's a, in the Transjordan, Moab, so there was different Moabs, and the Moab across the Jordan was run by a king named Balak, or Balak, B-A-L-A-K. And Balak was the king, and he heard about, I'll just read this one phrase, he refers to Israel as a people that came out of Egypt, Balak is terrified of these Israelis. So he calls Balaam, this prophet of Peor, says, Balaam, would you come over here and curse these people for me? I'll pay you to curse them. And it's a great character study in Balaam. Again, we don't know a lot about what Balaam believed, but he did have a, let's just call it a respectful fear toward Yahweh Elohim, probably because he heard the story about this 1.2 plus million people that came out of Egypt like locusts and were taking over the land that God had promised them. And he's terrified. So I'm going to call for help. Balaam, come curse these people. And so it's a back and forth story where Balaam and Balak's messengers are trying to bribe him to pronounce some curse over him. Oh, this is too fun. We've got to look at it. Look, turn to number 22. Number 22. We have no slides or anything. I'm off grid. It's dangerous. Numbers 22. Some of you haven't heard this story, and you're going to love it and going to want to study it more. Some of you are already laughing. So let's pick it up at 22. Numbers 22. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Unless you're cheating with a piece of technology. Numbers 22, 22. But God was angry because he was going. That is Balaam. So what's led up to this point is Balaam and God have had sort of an interaction and God has told him, you can't mess with these people because I've blessed them. But Balak is still offering him these opportunities to say, I'll pay you if you'll curse them. And Balaam says, look, I can't do anything that, that Yahweh says isn't true. Well, in this last part of chapter of the section before, Balaam decides to negotiate, if you will, and say, look, I'll come with you and I'll go up one more time and see what Yahweh will say to me. And this is where God gets ticked. God was angry because he was going and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he's riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. So, the, give you the picture. So, they're going on these narrow trails in the wilderness, and only the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, and he's got a sword. And so, the donkey, smart, gets away from the situation. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back to the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards, a wall on this side, a wall on that side. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord. She pressed herself in the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Any of you horse riders? Have you ever been on a horse that's pushed you against a wall? They're, they're smart animals. 
And sometimes when a horse doesn't want to do what you're doing, they'll push you and drag your leg against the side of a barn or something uncomfortable. So this donkey is a pretty smart donkey. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or the left. So we're getting neck down. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord. She laid down under Balaam. <laughs> okay, I can't turn. I'm just going to stop, drop, and roll here. So she drops down. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. This is the part you got to love. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, and I wish I, had, I could throw voices, what have I done to you that you struck me these three times? Now, this donkey is Balaam's, King James English, Balaam's donkey, and it's talking to him. That's the first comical part. But then Balaam talks back to her. <laughs> Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a mockery of me, if, I, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by my own now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you now? And he says, no. It's almost like Eeyore. Well, no, now that I think about it. <laughs> you got to love it. I'm sorry. Twisted sense of humor I have. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and bowed all the way to the ground. And it goes on. You need to study it because the striking is a big metaphor about how often the donkey is struck and so forth and so on. But back to 2 Peter, we must travel. The point Peter is using is a dumb animal was smarter than Balaam. That's the point Peter's making in 2 Peter about false teachers. False teachers are just like Balaam. They're stupid. They don't see the most obvious things. They're smart. They're, the donkey is smarter. And then Peter adds a little pepper to it and says they're mad. They're insane, which is pretty uncomforting, meaning they know what they're up against. They know what they're doing, and they're still soliciting others. Another observation here is that false teachers continue their deception and their immorality and their unrighteousness in a form of insanity. Money, sex, and power uh, can co-opt anyone. Enough of it. And it doesn't take too long, and I, I won't name names, but you know a little bit of your own history. Uh, we could think back on different very successful preachers that are charlatans that today have, ministries have been evaporated and destroyed because of money, sex, and power. And if you go back further, it's because of false teaching. Somewhere in those big systems, those big machines, the persona, the individual became the magnet, the draw. He or she is very gifted in language. He or she is very gifted in their teaching. He or she can traffic and grab these people in with their insatiable greed. It makes a lot of sense, frankly. The comedy, however, doesn't mitigate the tragedy. Well, let's look at their destruction, verses 17 to 22. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. That's a good idiom for you to write down and memorize. What a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. 
For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are so overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them if they had not known the way of righteousness than having known it and to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the proverb, the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing to wallowing in the mire. Peter's describing their destiny, their future, their destruction by some great idioms. Springs without water, misdriven by the storm. If you go to Israel, when you see the arid type of land and you see a storm coming, you're hopeful for water. It's just a tease. If you've got a garden and the rain stops, it's just a tease is what he's saying. We thought that springs were going to come and it wasn't. Black darkness has been reserved to them. Undoubtedly a connection to hell, this black darkness. I love the language reserved for them. Any of you use open table? Besides sending me, use open table to get a reservation somewhere? Think about these folks have an open table to hell. They've gone online, they've registered. I want a party of six to go to hell. That's what this language is saying to us. Speaking arrogantly of vanity, same word in verse 16. It's the idea of we'd say blowing smoke in English. They entice by fleshly desires. The Greek word is the word lure, L-U-R-E. I've never been much of a fisherman. I'm the kind of fisherman that when I go fly fishing, I don't even care if I catch a fish. In fact, you know the old Keb Mo song called La- uh, no, Keb Mo, Lazy Bones. Leon Redbone song, Lazy Bones, Sitting in the Sun. Uh, he talks about uh, sleeping in the shade, hope you don't you know, get your day's work made. But he has a line about, when you go fishing, I bet you keep wishing the fish don't grab at your line. That's me when I go fishing. I'm happy they leave me alone. But I have this little tiny box of backpacking flies that I carry with me to um, Oregon, uh, to Idaho, to uh, Snake River, to Colorado. And I've tried all these little jiggly bottom things, you know, and they're made out of hair and, you know, feather, and they're, they're quite ornate. And typically I get them in my finger more than they help me catch fish. What's a lure? It's supposed to look just like the bug that that fish would eat. I have a friend, some of you know Chris Veal, some of you fish with Chris Veal. Chris thinks like a fish. If you go fishing with Chris, he will go out into the Caney Fork, for example, and he will take his arms and go down to the bottom, and he'll pull up a log, and he'll turn that log over, and there's some little larvae crawling on it, and go, this is a such-and-such fly in larva state. This is what we're going to fish with today. And then he'll go back and open his fly boxes and say, find the whatever that larva. I mean, people that know this just astonish me. It's fascinating. I'm just glad to be along for the ride. But uh, that's how you think like a fish. And so you want that lure to be deceptive. Peter says they entice by fleshly desires. They lure you. If it looks too good to be true, it's too good to be true. If there's a big fat fly on the water right there, trout, it's too good to be true. That little jiggly bottom thing's dangling in front of you, it's too good to be true. Promising freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption, verse 19. There's nothing new under the sun. This goes back to Genesis 3, verse 5. For in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will know good and evil. 
the notion of abandoning guilt and shame is enslavement to sin. Some of you are as old as I am. You remember the book by Alan Bloom called The Closing of the American Mind. And one of the salient comments he wrote in that book was, psychologists are the sworn enemies of guilt. Psychologists are the sworn enemies of guilt. And you know the context from the 60s, the 70s, 80s, to where we are now with mental health. I'm pro-mental health. I'm pro-counseling. I'm not anti-therapist. But one of the trends that we saw happening was you shouldn't feel shame or guilt. Well, of course you don't shame a child into change, but every one of us has experienced shame and guilt because of some things. My, I remember my, my illustration months, months back about uh, absolute bars in algebra. If you have a negative formula with absolute bars, the outcome is always positive. Think about guilt and shame in that way. Maybe the motivation, the way we were shamed and felt guilty was wrong, but if we were wrong, can you look at it as a healthy guilt and shame? That's my simple point. Should you feel bad if you do something wrong? You think? No, let's, go, let's eradicate guilt and shame because shame is the enemy. No, no, it has nothing to do with what you feel. You feel something because something happened to you. Maybe you are the victim. Maybe you made a bad choice. I made a bunch of stupid choices as a teenager. I would never, ever, ever run for any political office. Because I would, they'd be, they'd, I'd be found out, baby. I don't, wanna, I don't want anybody knowing about my stupidity before I knew Jesus. And I'm ashamed and guilty of all of it. But you know what good that does for me? It's like a, it's like a block wall. Michael, don't go back there. Michael, don't go back there. Anecdotally, didn't plan to share this, but it seems fitting. Um, I was a big drug user, long hair, hippie. And when I came to Christ, the first thing he did was eradicate my use of drugs. I got, I've shared this story before. Most of you may have heard it. But three times I got stoned or intoxicated post-coming to Christ in my teen years. Each time was worse than the last. And the last time I got stoned and or drunk, I, it wasn't fun. It didn't take away the pain, didn't dull, it wasn't exciting anymore. And I stopped. And I often tell the story, it's like God took the back of his hand and said, Michael, you're done with drugs. Now fast forward as a person that's had four back surgeries and lives with chronic pains and been on opioids and all the drugs you can imagine. And, and God's great kindness, I'm not better than any person sitting in this room. And God's great kindness, I never once abused any opioid I was given for years. The one explanation I have for that is God. Period. I know people that struggle with, al struggle with alcohol and, and medications. I know it's a hard thing. I don't have any explanation for it. But what I can tell you is I was enslaved to those things. They promised freedom, as Peter said. But coming to Christ, it changed. Well, corruption is a vivid word. It's the word decomposition, again, used outside the Bible. And it's a horrific term. Even in antiquity, uh, killing an unborn child, was this term was used as the destruction of a fetus of a life. Well, the last state, verse 20 to 22, careful Bible students are going to scratch their heads about what in the world does this mean? We have the camp that says you can lose your salvation, Armenian, thanks to Jacob's Arminius, you can lose your salvation. There's a number of key verses they will turn to, and then we have to go to the other side and go, what, what's going on here? Verse 20 
the word they. Does they refer to the false teachers or the false teachers and all their followers? That's one of the things we have to struggle with. Pious Jews looked at dogs and pigs. Dogs weren't technically unclean, but they, they are for our conversation. Pigs were unclean. When you talk about the paw and the hoof and all that, you can't eat an animal with a paw, so therefore a dog is unclean by nature. A pig, of course, is, is cloven. You can't eat a pig. They're unclean animals. So these two animals fall in the unclean category, but it wasn't like they were raising dogs for food. Dogs were just a disregarded animal where pigs were used for food in the Gentile populations. The proverb simply is this. These animals did not change in their nature. A dog went back to his own vomit. A pig goes back to wallow. It's very simple. It's overworked by most Bible students, in my opinion. If you're a dog... You haven't changed your nature, you're still a dog. If you're a pig, haven't changed, you're still a pig. If I was a drug user and my nature wasn't changed, I'm still a drug user, but my nature was changed. Christ indwelt me with his spirit and I was changed. And I never abused substances again. Didn't go to a program, didn't go to detox, didn't go to rehab, didn't take other medications. I'm not, it wasn't me, it was God's kindness. Period. I take no credit for that. It was God's kindness. And you probably have similar stories and similar experiences in your own life where you were one way and God changed you and you're no longer that way anymore. They're unrepentant. These pigs and, Jews, pigs and dogs' nature have not changed. They return to their nature. A couple of lessons. Number one, Christianity requires constant re-education. Christianity requires constant re-education. I don't care how old you are, if you're a person that's been in the Word all your life, or if you're a person that is sort of new to the Bible. It doesn't matter. That's the cool part. Christianity demands ongoing re-education because we forget everything. You've heard my old dumb joke, morning by morning new verses I read. Never saw that before. How many times read the Bible? I never saw that verse before. Spurgeon said that no one ever outgrows the scriptures. It widens and deepens with our years. Constant re-education. The other reason we need constant re-education, not because some people forget and we need to grow, is that we need to teach others. There's a lot of kiddos in this room. And they don't all know the story of Balaam. They don't all know the story of the baker. They don't all know the story of Esther. They don't all know the story of and so we need to be constantly, I tell my pastor friends, you'll never be out of work. If you can teach the Bible somewhere, you'll never be out of work. You may not get paid for it, but you'll never be out of work because your job is to get people interested, excited, enthusiastic, curious about the Bible. That's your job in life. What a great job. The Christian education is an ongoing, never-ending challenge. And another reason is because false teachers are always around the fringes. If you would have told the uh, founders of the Disciples of Christ, the founders of the, some of the Baptist bifurcations, so many splits with the Baptists, if you'd, have, if you'd have told John Wesley what would have happened after he died and what would happen to Methodism, which he didn't want to occur, and what became of the Methodist Church today is one of the leading liberal denominations, none of those founders would have believed it. But as soon as you loose the moorings from God's Word and God's Spirit, you're now in muddy water. And that's where the culture will always be. Secondly, how much change is enough change? And this divides the theological camps. Um, 
whether you're Armenian, Calvinistic, arch-reformed, semi-reformed, evangelical, fundamental, this typically in my acumen is how you decide how much change is enough change. Do you have to change in all these areas to be sure you're a Christian? I remember when AIDS was uh, just coming out as an epidemic and we didn't know what it was. They hadn't even used the term HIV. They just knew a lot of people who were involved in a, a homosexual lifestyle were dying of something they couldn't figure out. And uh, I remember on a radio broadcast living in Dallas, Texas, Cindy and I were, I was still in graduate school, and uh, I won't use the person's name, a renowned Christian author was on the radio, and the, and the person asked him, well, when men, in particular men, were dying of this disease, they called it the gay disease, was that God's judgment? And he said, yes. And I really recoiled at that. I went, wait, 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 wait. How can you make that one-to-one connection so quickly? A person gets cancer, it's not necessarily because they're a smoker. Sometimes people get cancer and they're not, they never smoked a cigarette in their life. So you, you can't just wholesale jump on that bandwagon, right? Well, how much change is enough change? And this person will delineate the things this person had to change. Now we use the term same-sex attraction. Hopefully the Christian church is kinder and gentler to anybody that struggles with any kind of sin. We're not out. It's not the hammer and nail illustration. Every nail, everything's a nail. I got a hammer. I'm going to whack it. We all struggle. We Earlier on, we're toast or leave. If you're not toast, leave. Because we think thoughts. We have impressions. We have impulses. We get mad. We deceive a little bit. We don't tell the whole truth. We kind of nuance things. We're not forthcoming. Fill in the blank. So how much change is enough change? Let, let me just say it as simply as I can. It has to be a fundamental change. Meaning, do you know that Christ died for you? Apart from Christ's work, you have no hope. He lived, he died, he was buried. He came back from the dead. He offers salvation to any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. That's the benchmark. He lived, he died, he was buried. He came back from the dead to prove his power over death. Anyone who puts their trust in Christ and Christ alone is given the same free gift of eternal life. Their sins are forgiven. They're a new creation in Christ. Are they perfect? Are they complete? Are they sinless? When God looks at you, if you're a believer, he sees Christ's work. He doesn't see your works. The only hope we got is he's looking at Christ's redemptive works, not mine. So it's sort of a both and. Let's be kind to people, even those people that say, well, if you don't believe this, 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 you cannot be a Christian. And over here that, you know, these people believe anything and everything and call themselves Christians. Let's be very careful. Let's go back to what the gospel is. And I don't care what a person's struggle is, what a person's choice is, what a person's identity is. That man or woman is either in Christ or not. Now, back to my friend's scenario, this person deserves it. They have this, God's judging them and they're not a Christian. To which I would simply say, um, okay, you can approach it that way. I'm going to approach it that that person's sick and they're dying perhaps and they need to know Christ. And if they have all the right answers to the questions, I don't know for sure. But if they can articulate they believe in Jesus Christ, he lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead, he offered them eternal life, he offers them forgiveness of sins, he loves them, then I'm going to say that person grasped the gospel. Can you know for sure? Can I know for sure? Nope. 
where it becomes legalistic is saying we can know for sure. If then, if you don't believe my 10 criteria, you cannot be a Christian. If you believe these things, of course you're not a Christian. And that continuum, is, it's, it's, it should be wiped off the table. What Peter is saying here is the nature was unchanged, and they went back to who they really were. These false teachers never embraced Christ. They're still a pig. They're still wallowing in the mire. They're still a dog. Goes back to its vomit. The last part of this aspect of what's enough change to me is seen in a number of pivotal places in the New Testament. Let me just jump to the last one. And that's where we see the two criminals on the cross. We've got these two criminals. Remember, Jesus Christ is being killed, executed as a capital offense. We call it a death penalty. So whatever they did, they both had the sentence of death on them. And you know the story, each of the two criminals. One of them demands and abuses, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other not only defends Jesus, but rebukes the criminal. He says, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence and condemnation? And we indeed justly, the guy said, we deserve to die for we are receiving what we deserved. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying this, Jesus, he said to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. All humanity lines up on one side or the other. It's the most beautiful illustration of the crucifix. Either you or do something about my problem. Will you remember me? Will you help me? Will you have mercy on me? Will you, will you do something for my condition? I deserve, I deserve death. That's the part people miss. I deserve what I'm getting. Will you help me? And that's the line. If you don't know Christ, that's our hope and prayer of any good Bible teaching church is that you know who this Jesus is. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Thank you.